This podcast is recorded on Gadigal land. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay our respects to the elders past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the Hummus and Dill podcast. My name is Hala Abdelnour. And I'm Rob Kaldor. Now, this podcast is a series of chats between the two of us over the last few weeks. We've been doing these podcasts because we think it is important to model having a discussion about the conflict in the Middle East and its flow-on effects in Australia without it turning toxic and negative. We hope that listening to the podcast will encourage you to reach out to people that you may not agree with and have a chat for the sake of building mutual respect and understanding. Whilst the conflict in Gaza and Israel is a tragedy, we've built a great rapport based on mutual respect. We've been doing this off our own with no funding. If you like what you hear, we have a service called Buy Me A Coffee. For the cost of a coffee, you can help us make a few more podcasts. We're currently having our studio space donated by Piccolo Podcasts, so a big shout out to Andrew Mensel. We would love to pay him and that's what this funding would do. We're also taking time away from our paid work to make these podcasts. So if you like it, or even if you don't, let your friends and family know about it. The Homeless and Dill podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, before we get to our first chat, if you have any feedback or have a question, send us an email old school to the email address hummusanddill at gmail.com. That's H-U-M-M-U-S-N-D-I-L-L at gmail.com. So let's listen to our first chat that took place on December 14th, 2023. Hello, I suppose the key question, how did we meet? Yeah, well, we met at uh, a recent Bayside Council meeting where a motion was passed for a ceasefire. There was an eruption of violence on the 7th of October and um, and I think there's been uh, calls that uh, what Israel is doing at the moment is genocidal and I think there's definitely um, an agreement around the world that the, the level of destruction we're seeing and the level of violence is disturbing to say the least. So there was a motion passed for a ceasefire in a Bayside Council, well, and lots of local councils around Australia were passing the same motion. And I went to that meeting as a, as a resident of Bayside at this point in time to support the motion, um, and I registered to speak in support of that motion. And I met you because you were sitting behind me at that meeting and you registered to speak I- against the I- motion. How did you find out about it? Um, I threw emails or through through the networks. Actually, somebody sent it to me and said you should register to speak at this. And I'd, I'm looking for ways to be involved mm. and to support um, peace and justice. So I guess another part of my introduction is since three years ago, I've been the CEO and founder of the Institute of Nonviolence, and we primarily support family violence response across Australia. We also see family violence as interconnected with other forms of social violence like gender mm. gender and race and um, other other things that you know other elements that can be used as power over with people so it's I guess it's something I do and so someone sent it to me and said you should register to speak at this thing and I certainly um, felt moved to do that because I'm looking for ways to support a peaceful and just way of being in the world. So like our, our um, slogan is to create a world where nonviolence is the social norm. And for me, I don't know how we achieve that with 
most of the world's resources going towards military mm, okay, so spending. That- so that's why I was there. Um, you were sitting behind me. Yeah, I, I, I get very edgy just sitting down. Uh, I think I noticed that about you, though, uh, in the meeting. <laughs> I, I felt like your energy was high and you were definitely keen and eager to talk to those around you because um, five out of six who supported the motion were there in person and two out of three who didn't support the motion were there in person. So there was, And the two of you were sitting amongst the five of us. Yeah. So I imagine that would have been um, all sorts of... It, triggering. Uh, I don't know if that's the best word, but, well, I, but I mean, I'll tell you how I found the event. Yeah. So first, I'm sure we've got. I think we had this chat. We've got equivalent community WhatsApps or emails going on about. So someone sent it to me and said, "You know what? You should. Uh, you're a resident of Bayside. You should go and have. You should go and talk." And I registered to speak. I suppose I wasn't particularly prepared. I took my 18-year-old son. He put on his uh, Maccabi, which is the Jewish soccer team, top. I would sort of characterise the crowd there as probably, you know, 80 90% pro-Palestinian. I would agree, and I think that was the shock um, where the motion didn't pass because Bayside Council's population would be largely pro-Palestinian. So... Um you know, and one of the one of the councillors did say that that there's a quite a significant number of Lebanese and Palestinian mm. residents that live there, as as well as I think we saw people from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds mm. that were there supporting. My reason for not supporting the motion, and just to put it out there, that I, obviously I'm pro peace as a higher level. Like, a, you know, I think the horror going on is something that I've n- never seen in my lifetime. Thought as humanity, on some levels, we're past it, and I know on a more sort of uh, realistic level looking at the world that we're obviously not. My, my reason, there were two things I had against it. Number, my first primarily reason was I thought it was divisive and not really the role of local council in, in, in Australia. I, didn't th- I don't think, I think they've got enough that they should be worrying about. Secondly, I didn't think there was an acknowledgement of what happened on October 7 in, in the motion. You know, I talked about founding the Institute of Nonviolence mm. and I don't know how you achieve nonviolence with military funding and resourcing and that means that then those weapons get used. And so, I, like, for me, and I'm happy to dive deeper, but I don't know how you achieve peace without a ceasefire. So I'm really curious about that part because I believe you when you say that you're pro-peace, but I struggle to understand how you would be pro-peace without and not want a ceasefire, even if we got to get the words, you know, I, I understand you weren't happy with the wording, but there's the wording, there's sort of, we can we can debate forever what's, what, mm. what happened and who and what, but and until people stop shelling each other, you know, and, and we, there is definitely skewed, it's definitely not an even war, and I wouldn't even call it a war. So if you're pro-peace and you had you have an opportunity to speak up and say, okay, from a pro-peace perspective, this is what I think should happen. Mm. This is what I would have rather happened at this. Let's say council, whatever happened, the council can actually impact the rest of the world. And I do believe in ripple effects. What would we do now, hypothetically, if whatever you say now will happen and it will create peace, what would we do if not a ceasefire to create peace? I I think the... And, and this is where we often and I get into these circular kind of arguments is 
I, I, and I it's not. I'm, I don't want to argue with you. I, I'm actually genuinely interested. Okay, no, like, no. I want. I want. I, I, what I'm curious about is the your thinking process. Like, I actually think you can say something that I go, okay, fair enough. Because there's there's an there's a there's an end outcome which is peace, right? Yeah. Then there's how you get there. So, I, for I, me, if if that's a mathematical formula, I, I would go. The first equation I need to solve is stop the military. Okay. Stop. Um, but, and, and ceasefire. Then we need to take care of the people that have been wounded. Then, like then, then it gets complex for me. Then it gets to how do we have the conversations? We've got to do some healing. There's a lot of trauma. The entire world needs to be involved with this because we've all had enough. We can't leave it up to those two entities to figure figure it out because they won't. So then somewhere, then I don't even know what the piece looks like at the end, right? But we have to also imagine it. So for me, that I go step by step. Step one is you got to have a ceasefire right now. And and I'm just sharing with you, like that's how I think it. And you can go to me. No, my logic is different. And you can, t- like, uh, I, I just want to. Uh, okay, so I. Fir- so what what what? How do we achieve peace? What's the first step? Not like I, I'm imagining ceasefire is a part of it for you. For, well, first I'll, I'll I'll put it out there, and you probably are the same. I'm not a military or strategic expert in this space, and part 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 of our dialogue yeah. is not about. I mean. If we could solve the Middle East in a podcast in Sydney, that would be lovely. But I think it's about <laughs> mo- it's about modelling uh, good discussion and discourse, having different opinions and respecting each other's opinions. And so far, all our interactions have been like that. Yeah, and absolutely. Been, uh, and I, and and I think just to um, just to throw in because we have had some conversations about how we haven't just walked into the room, and I think I've really appreciated that we've taken the time to chat casually discuss what it might be that what what it is we want to talk about and it's not scripted and I really love the moment where we both agreed and I think we've come back to it a number of times in our conversations ahead leading up to today we've both agreed that one of the core aims is to just listen to understand Mm. and you know and I think uh, we both we talked about this idea of let's agree to disagree and and I think I said to you no that's like slamming the door shut in someone's Mm. face before you even talk so I haven't come here to agree to disagree with you. I've come here to genuinely try to understand your perspective because whilst you said we have similarities, we have differences, um, you could be born and raised exactly where I was and have a different opinion mm. about this. So it's not even about where we're born and raised. So I, I'm genuinely curious to just understand other people's perspectives. And I think we've agreed to create a space where we do that, where we just have a conversation um, and hope that – if anything, anyone listening to this has a go at that as well. When we both spoke, because at, at this event, because not not I, it's not so much the con- the content is obviously essential and important, but the way it was set up, and I'd never been to a council meeting, and all things being equal, I never want to go back to one again. It was it, it, my my uh, it was quite a harrowing thing for me, purely because. Besides worrying about my son's safety at the same time, I when I spoke and there was one other Jewish guy speaking in person, we were shouted at the whole time. And even before and after, it was what was more harrowing was people being in my face and physically calling me names which do not at all get close to the reality in the world and my self-perception. Um, you know, saying I've got blood on my hands and like I'm a perpetrator of genocide and pretty horrific things to say to anyone. And there was, I think I also had a reaction to someone being in my physical space 
you know, like right up in your face and calling you that. And at the end, I also had people that were trying to incite me to be physical while physically aggressive whilst filming me. And I found that, you know, quite confronting. I'm not a, I'm not someone that lives in the world of politics on a daily basis. Um, so the actual event I found quite harrowing and my reason that the reason I reached out to you because there was you and another woman at the event were the only ones that actually would speak to me, not speak at me, but would speak to me. Um, and I also, when I heard you speak, you're incredibly articulate, quite humorous, dare I say, in a style that I found very easy to listen to and very persuasive. So I was impressed by it. And that. And then when I when I Googled what you do and I thought, well, you know, obviously your nine-to-five work, which is probably three-to-twelve work, is incredibly important and something that I believe in. And I was thinking, well, you're the kind of person I'd like to have on, in some way in my life anyway because you're, you're someone that's living life with an ideal in mind and trying to leave the world a better place than you came in with it. And I fully respect that. Um, when the vote didn't go get, the motion didn't get passed and I don't think originally most people didn't realise it wasn't because it was five, I think five people It vote. was a confusing process. It, it was. It looked like it was going to pass and then something happened and then it didn't pass. Well, and they didn't announce it. And I think the councillors were too scared to announce it. So they just put it up on this screen. But we're not familiar with their process. So it was, even I was trying to read it and it looked to me like it might not have passed, but I I was waiting for them to say, yeah. and they just weren't. And then someone in the audience yelled out, "Did it get through or not?" And then someone said, "No, it didn't." And then it went. And crazy. the room erupted, of, and of course it did. You know, because I think imagine being, um, you know, Lebanese or Palestinian or pro-Palestinian going to, and I don't know Sydney well enough. I don't know what local council Bondi is or Coogee, but imagine being there. You'd be outnumbered. You know, so, you know, mm. it's sort of that's just by demographic, really, than anything else. And and it would feel just as off, like because you, I mean it's normal when you're a minority mm. that you would feel a little outnumbered and overpowered. I didn't see any violence erupting, but I did see a lot of emotions erupting. And and I think the other thing to note about the majority of the Arabic speaking residents of Bayside Council come from the south of Lebanon, mm. if not from Palestine, and they are people who have firsthand experienced a very similar violence. And and they're also right now, if they're Palestinian, their families are in, impacted. And if they're from the south of Lebanon, that's also being attacked mm-hmm. by Israel since, uh, you know, and it always has been. and has It was invaded from 1981 till 2000. It was occupied by Israel. Um, so I actually think it's a miracle in a way, mm. and uh, that that violence, more like physical violence, didn't erupt. I'm not. Con- I wouldn't want that, and I wouldn't condone it. But to see the heightened emotions, um, f- from for some people, it, it's like you're saying, "My own family can die." Mm. That's what it felt like to us. Like your whoever didn't support this motion is saying, "It's okay for my family to die," and the and for people who don't have family there. What I'm seeing is trauma in people's faces at observing babies and children and women and innocent men being carpet bombed, you know, sort of um, being dehumanized, being um, 
uh, under the rubble, we don't even know who's under the rubble, like beyond the murders, beyond mm. those we know have been murdered, there's just it, there's an annihilation of, of an entire place. We'll get back to our chat in a little bit. If you're listening to this and want us to keep making these podcasts, you can either use the Buy Me A Coffee service, which is in the show notes. If you want to sponsor the series, you can email us at hummusanddill at gmail.com. That is H-U-M-M-U-S-N-D-I-L-L at gmail.com. Now let's get back to our first chat from December 14, late last year. I'm psychodrama trained. And um, and I'm still doing that training, so I'm not a psychodramatist. But Moreno, J.L. Moreno, uh, who's a Jewish-American mm. <laughs> student of Freud, came up, developed the theory of psychodrama or the, the process of psychodrama mm. and the practice. He was a psychiatrist and a theatre producer, hence the very poorly named m- modality. Mm. But I, I won't go into it if, you know, if sort of anyone's interested, they can Google it. But one thing I really love about psychodrama and what Moreno said is it's about as we as we develop ourselves and as we progress in the world, what we want to look at is am I having an adequate response to a situation? And if my response to the situation is adequate, even if it's elevated, it's okay because it's an adequate response. If my response to a situation is inadequate, then it's either an overdeveloped role or an underdeveloped role. So for me, and you could completely mm. have a different perspective, when people get that emotional about it not being sort of, you know, of course we're not going to, of course we're going to vote for a ceasefire, of course we want this violence to end. For me, that elevated sense of emotion, especially when you've got family ties and connections and personal triggers of trauma, is an adequate response to a genocide. Uh, so I, I mean, obviously I don't agree with everything that you say there, but I, I hear what you're saying. Why I think it's been so triggering for a lot of the Jewish community in Sydney, especially, actually, it's in, oh, no, the worldwide, world, yeah, is, I think there's been protests in London. No, <laughs> I, I, but but I, I think it's got to do with the whole Holocaust background that's yeah. under, that's underpinned the Jewish community. Yeah. So, part of my problem with that motion, not naming Hamas, and also what they actually did was not. It was horrible. It was absolute. you know, what happened on October 7th, which was... Was it more horrible than what's happened since? I have problems with the concept of saying this happened on October 7th and then it following it with a but. And the same way what's going on in, Israel, in Gaza yeah. at the moment yeah. is a standalone thing. And I've got my opinion. It not, okay. It's not standalone. They're both... It's, the, yeah, the, it's the, not. It's not standalone. One thing triggered the other. There's, yeah. no, there's no doubt about it. I, I suppose coming back to your original question about my take on a ceasefire, I believe there should be a ceasefire now. But I think the problem is the hostages, number one, as a methodology of conflict, taking innocent hostages and legitimising that as a tool of a resistance mm. is morally absurd and cruel. And I'm not saying what's going on even so, the Israel, the Israeli sort of take on what's going on with the war in Gaza is that they're targeting Hamas militants and tunnels and trying to rescue hostages yeah. and all of that, and it's not indiscriminate. Um, you said before you kind of it's carpet bombing. I reckon my personal take is the reality is somewhere in between. I know that the Israeli army's intention is not to kill. The intention is not to kill everybody. The intention is to end Hamas, and that whole that whole end game 
is, you know, the goal of this conflict is problematic in a way because I don't think it's ever going to be possible and I think it's going to breed yeah. a new, a new so, generation of trauma and people that build the conflict. And if we can go back to um, origin of the conflict, it's probably not going that far back, but if we go to... 1948. We can go... Well, let's go back to when Netanyahu got elected because I think me, like many... Jewish and obviously Israeli people are not pro-Netanyahu. The democracy always falls 45, 55, one way or another around the world. And his election and reliance on the far right to keep him in power and then other things going on that he's desperate to stay in power so as not to go to jail um, have definitely convoluted things. I'll throw this back at you. you. If you were you know, the head of Israel, we're doing really interesting role plays here. If you were Prime Minister of Israel, what would an appropriate reaction be October 7 or October 8? Well, you know, to be honest with you, and I can't, like, answer this now without having, like, without the fact that I, I did watch the interview with Bassem Youssef when Piers Morgan asked him the same thing. And I, as soon as he answered it, I thought, yeah, perfect answer. I would do exactly what the head of Israel is doing now because if I was the head of Israel, I'd be that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, but it, me, as a, like, if I'm me, I'm not a politician, you know, like at that Bayside meeting as well. And it's not the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Like ever since I was a teenager, people have just thought I was going to get into politics. Yeah. People told me, you're going to be a politician. You should be a politician. You should think about being a politician. People ask me if I'm a politician. Mm-hmm. They assume I'm part of a political party. So my, like most of my life, people have thought, and at that meeting as well, after I spoke, like a number of, I think it was Labor and Green mostly in the room, um, both asked me if I was a member of their party and, mm. and whether I would join. And if I were the head of Israel, I would have done what every head of Israel has ever done since 1948. Okay. Right? So let, but, let, let, but I'm not. Your... But if I'm me, I would never be the head because I can't see how you could enter politics and be in that level of leadership and power and I don't like calling it leadership because I actually think they're very poor leaders. They're just very, um, they're just in in positions of power. I I can't see how you could be in that without getting corrupted as a person. So I'm, I actually don't want to be there. And and I just want to add. I just want to. I'll come back to that. Mm. I just want to add one other thing because it's relevant. It's relevant when we're talking about leaders and why the world is the way it is, right? And for a very long time in my life, I've I've actually thought about this a lot, and I thought there's a particular type of personality that seems to want to be in power, Mm. whether it's CEO, board directors of like giant corporations, political leaders, especially of powerful countries, there's a certain, but even at a lower level, like there's a certain personality that wants that. And only just like a couple of weeks ago, I read a research, a study that came out that showed whilst narcissistic psychopaths make less than 4% of the entire world population, they're more than 80% of leadership roles. So- had I been a narcissistic psychopath, I'd be the leader of Israel, I'd be the leader of Australia, I'd be the leader of America, I'd be the leader of a co- giant corporation mm-hmm. funding all these things, but I, I don't think I am one. And so I'm not even attracted to those roles. But can, can, like and, I, and so let's come back. So, so, so let's come back. So I, I, the reason I wanted to say that is I think it's relevant that narcissistic psycho- psychopaths are leading. But they're, but they're leading on... On, on and, both and maybe sides. the leader of Hamas is a narcissistic psychopath too, right? So you got narcissistic psychopaths fighting each other, and to me that makes perfect sense because look at the state of the world. No, I, and I, I, when I go, I want a ceasefire. Like, where where do we find 
where do other personality types go? They might do podcasts in mm, the community. Yeah. They might run little organizations. They might be in the UN. And I'm not saying everyone mm. in the UN is perfect. Quite the opposite. But um, they they do social work. They do their doctors and their lawyers and and they're people who chose professions to try to make the world a better place. And in the end, we all end up fighting the same narcissistic psychopaths that have all the power. And and the reason I'm saying this, like the 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 parallels between and I've spent my entire life thinking about war because I grew up in mm. one, thinking about systemic racism because I grew up with that, thinking about injustice, imbalances, inequities in the world, because I'm I'm a woman mm-hmm. and I'm a migrant and I didn't speak English when I came here and I'm little, I'm small, stature, I've got curly hair. Mm-hmm. Like none of these things are what gives you social power in society. I thought about that for a long time. Then I started working in family violence and this and I, I, I was just the other day having this uh, a live conversation, you know, with a, with a colleague of mine because we just can see the striking parallels between the perpetration of family violence and societal response to it and the perpetration of systemic abuse, including level like war, mm. military occupation, whatever, genocides, colonization, all of these things, and the global response to it. And the most atrocious forms of family violence that shock us all, where that, that result in murder, and we know that more than, uh, you know, at least, a, at least one woman a week is murdered yep. in Australia by a partner or ex-partner who's often a male, most often a male. Yep. The ones that are the most atrocious, they tend to have that personality disorder, you know, what we call it, like narcissism, mm-hmm. psychopathy, sociopathy, the complete lack of empathy, the self-victimization mentality. So I have... I, I, I run men's behavior change programs, so I've spent hundreds of hours, I don't know how many hours, sitting in a room with up to 14 men in each group, men who've, like this is really, I, I don't talk about it too much because mm. it's confronting for the audience who hasn't done this work, mm. but men who've thrown their partners across the room, men mm. who've strangled her just still before she died and then let go and then did it again and then let go. You know, men who've described to me cracking her head against things, right? So atrocious things. They're not fun, but it's not fun to watch what's going on in Gaza either. No. So uh, I'm just saying those men saw themselves as the victim. Every single one of them was 100% convinced that they were the victim and the world was against them because they're now getting slapped on the wrist and they're being made to do this program and the world's gone crazy and women have all the power now and the judges have gone mad and they're handing out um, IVOs or AVOs or mm. DVOs, whatever they're called in any state or territory, they're handing them out like they're lollies, right? So for me, I work with perpetrators of violence and I have done so for 20 years because I started my career mm. in a maximum security male prison. The majority of men that have committed the most atrocious crimes, if we want to call them atrocious, or violent crimes or crimes that astound us or shock mm. us or sort of disturb us, and the ones that are being caught for it, by the way, yeah. not everyone gets caught, have been so victimized in their lives, have an early childhood experience of true victimization. So for me, everybody knows the history of the Jews. One, because you mm. keep telling us, and two, because yeah. it, it happened. No one's denying, right? But the Jews are not the only victims of war. They're not the only victims of Holocaust. They're not the only victims of genocide. They're not the only um, victims of, of exile and, and ethnic cleansing and all of those things, right? Sometimes the narrative feels like Jews think they are the only victims so, so th- or the only I- victims that matter. 
So when you say to me the Holocaust, okay, when I was three, my village was wiped out by Israel. Yeah. My grandfather was murdered. Entire families were wiped out. They don't exist mm. anymore, right? We're, we just acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands and we talked mm. about how it's mm. hard to connect and whatever and we can't see them here. The genocide actually took place in Australia. Like genocides have happened anywhere where there's First Nations, America, yeah. North America, South America, New Zealand, like Canada, like, you know, okay, right? So no one else uses their genocide to justify, to justify war crimes. Okay, I don't justify use it as a justification you don't but then, no but people but I, it's I part I, of the narrative though. The, the, and there is narrative both sides one of the interesting things that if we were to take the various speeches made at this council event switched roles and did cut and paste for the different sides there was a lot of similarities and when i say a lot of the stuff on socials and in articles from different perspectives what i'm often taken by is how you can change a few places, names and narratives and we're saying the same story. I mean, from a, from a, from a pragmatic point yeah. of view, you've got two peoples that want to live in one land. That's not new, okay? It's lived, you can argue the origins of the people and who's there and where they came from and rights of returns and all that kind of thing. But the, where we are now is two peoples that want to live in one place together. Yeah. And when people talk about the two-state solution for this conflict, it's often put put in a way of a peace agreement, while I think a better representation of it may at the moment would be a separation, like a, a relationship being separated because history's shown in recent years that we're we, not living nicely together. We've got to build a lot more trust from the Jewish-Israeli perspective, whatever you want to call it. The trigger point of this, of the massacre, is something that we're... Con- the, the, we're saying the same thing. We just want some level of acknowledgement. You know, I think the last thing I said in my speech was, uh, you know, I pray, f- I pray that the Palestinian people can be free of Hamas kind of thing. So there's part of my problem with things is by giving Hamas a level of validity as a combatant, you're not acknowledging them then as a terrorist, a horrible organisation. Can, can you use those words towards the State of Israel or is that not like, because you've talked about hostages, you've talked about the absurdity of the horrors of what Hamas did and, and I agree, like no no people should be treated that way. I but spo- you don't, you know, you know like when you say what, what annoys us is no one said Hamas on the 7th of October, I think the response you get from people on, who are standing in solidarity with Palestine is, why can't you do that as well for Israel? Because the majority of us, when you say, do you condemn Hamas, which is a, a very triggering question now, um, we also, of course, like no one, no one agrees with violence against anybody. Like we don't want all the Jews to die. No one's ever stood up and said, oh, we, we, we actually, we're not going to arrest till all the Jews are. Like that's a minority mm. of voices here and there. But the majority of pro-Palestinian protesters, which are growing in numbers and in mm. the millions, around the world. No one's saying the Jews should die. They're saying the Palestinians should live. And no one's saying Hamas is amazing and they're the best, they should lead the world. No one's saying that at all. They're labelling people who are standing for peace and justice in various parts of the world and saying you should be the leader if only all leaders could be like you. Mm. No one's saying Hamas should be the leaders of the world. Mm. So, So this kind of obsession with all of us naming Hamas is interesting and for me is a distraction. It's an avoidance behaviour. It's an avoidance of looking at what Israel's doing. I, and so to, this comes to, back to that original question. 
um, you've made it clear that you won't be running the state of Israel. But um, yeah, what, like, what would you do? What would you do if you were the head of Israel? What, what, what would you like? We're just playing it, you know, in a way. It's going, <laughs> what would you do if, head, if you were the head? of I mean, I suppose it, you could ask the same question: What would I have done if I, you know? So my, my obviously got within the Jewish community a more progressive view of what you know. There's like like all communities, there's a range of views. I'm more on the left, but. This is one of the first things I said to you was um, I'm a proud Zionist, I actually believe. And, and my take on Zionism is that Israel has a right to exist. You can, Israel is a homeland for the Jewish people and it has a right to exist. You can, we can talk in more detail about You can what... be an anti-Zionist and believe that. I think Zionism has started to take on far greater meaning for a lot of people who are anti-Zionist than simply the right for Jews to exist. No, the right for a Jewish homeland to exist. Yeah, even that. Like I think anti-Zionists are anti-occupation. So that's right? that's, like, that's so changed think, in my that's yeah. changed in my lifetime because I the I think I started and I, we, we didn't really get to it, but I was like I think part of the problem was I I think since Netanyahu's been in power, he's been lazy in Basically, there's been no positive attempt to have peace deals and you can uh, to live together and very various more political yeah. reasons yeah. why. One of the arguments within the Jewish community is how can you make peace with Hamas, which are an organisation that demand that you no longer exist and mm. their charters, you've heard that before, the charter of Hamas is says all the Jews should go kind of thing. So how can you make peace with them? Yeah. And that's obviously incredibly problematic. I think Israel, in the relative position of power that they are having a large military and controlling everything, missed out on an opportunity to proactively make peace with the Palestinian people and actually provide infrastructure and empower the the Palestinian Authority, for example, to run... The West Bank, like part part of that absolutely. is about bu- is about yeah, building absolutely. building relationships because in the long but, but they did the opposite they funded Hamas I know they, yeah they, they, they well, supported it, Hamas and that that's again political it, pragmatism yeah and you can argue the same way that you know how, there's the relationship between you know the impending relationship between Israel and the Saudis pissed off the Iranians who therefore said let's go. You know, that, 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 that. Yeah, is it, you know, like, because I think I said this to you before, you know, when we've chatted, right? Because now we're talking about these people. And I see those people as businessmen, corrupt, unethical, immoral businessmen who will put everybody's life at risk for the sake of their profit and gain. And I said to you as well that I'm interested in having this conversation with you. Because I'm interested in having this conversation with anyone, really, mm. so that we – I want to separate humans, mm. like, who just want to live their lives, look after their families, go to work, go to school, go on a holiday, dance, laugh, mm. make love, you know, have an argument here mm. and there, right, and just – and that's it. And then you live out your life and you die and whatever. You know, you leave something behind. You leave a legacy. You leave work. You leave a family. You leave, you know, offspring – I don't think we're the same as those business people. And I know they like they convince us that they're against each other and they set us off against each other whilst they do business deals. Like I actually think they're profiting and gaining all of them. Like to me, the leader of Israel, Iran, Saudi, 
US, everybody, all, UK, like they're mm. all one and the same breed of people. None of them care about us. They're actually, to me, they prove to me through their actions that they're interested in profit and gain at the expense of human life, at the expense of peace, at the expense of security. Biz- business is business is brutal at the best of times, right? They well, often, this is the most brutal form so of see, business. Like we're well, talking about arms and I, drugs I, I, and I, I, human trafficking and I, absolutely. I mean, oil and gas. And just even in Australia, people justify things that affect people, but they say it's a business decision. They don't say I'm making a whole division redundant. That's a business decision, but actually, no. There's 50 families and people that suddenly don't have yeah. income and things like that. That's a, a more Australian example kind of thing. I oh, and it, well, it's a capitalist example. It's a capitalist yeah, example. A, but that's, but modern day Western European capitalism th- that a, runs the world. That's yeah. a different discussion. That's a, that it is, is, a, that, that <laughs> it's is, all interlinked. <laughs> but we, it, is, it is the world that we live in though. Yeah. So I, like, you know, I'm, again, I'm not coming, I'm not trying to say I'm a political and, Analyst or any, any anything like that, but no, we're just two but, people. We're not we, analysts we're, of any sort. <laughs> well, well, no, but, but but the reality with the, with this conflict, the recent conflict, yeah, no, I mean there, there probably is a focus on the horrors of um, what went on on October seven, and I suppose you know my personal connection to it is not direct, direct, other than I lived on a kibbutz right where that dance party was. Mm. I know people that were at that dance party. I know a few people that intended to get to that dance party had tickets and couldn't get there because they couldn't organise a taxi. It became too expensive. My eldest daughter was actually in Israel three weeks before, would have gone to that dance party, the peace party. I would have given her money to go to that party Mm, and encouraged mm. her to do it. Um, And I suppose part of it is the horror of, the people that were killed in that in horrible ways and um, irrespective of you believe, you know, what actually happened. There were a lot of innocent people at a dance party on a kibbutz killed indiscriminately, cruelly. There was crimes against women. Are you able to, like, no one's disputing that. I haven't heard anybody disputing that. I haven't heard anyone dispute that people were killed on that day, that it was atrocious, that it was disturbing, that it's a war crime, that Hamas also needs to be taken to the ICC. But see, I, 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 I but the, when I hear that side of the story, I never hear, you know, Israel has actually killed way more Palestinians in the last ten years alone than the, what died at that party, I don't, and, I don't think or any... that that it, Palestinians are living in an illegal occupation with which is which is a war crime in itself, um, or that there are more than five thousand Palestinian prisoners unlawfully held in Israeli jails. Most of like a, a significant chunk, at least thirty percent, are children um, that are arrested without charges, without trial, without any in, intention of releasing them. Like some of them are just. You know, without any access to the public, without access to journalists, we don't know anything about what's going on in Israeli jails. I, I um, think the difference you know, is And also, that, sorry, and one yeah. more thing too, because these are the things you've said, is yes, the Hamas charter says we want to wipe out Israel, but Netanyahu went into the UN Security General Council with a map of the Middle East that had no Palestine on it. He has publicly stated repeatedly since the 7th of October that he does intend to wipe out Gaza. He does intend to annihilate the Palestinian people. Why can't they move to I the th- Sinai? That's that, that's okay. ethnic cleansing. So 
I I don't necessarily I don't, agree with that, but I also I also well, it's it's televised. Like I, w- I would I mean, say that he said he's going to get he, his aim is to get rid of Hamas. And he, I suppose his he, party the, called them human animals, and then they called them non-human animals. Well, see, this is the, this is not disputed no, by no, anybody. The, the, like there are they, some far right elements in his coalition. Yeah, but but you don't name those. I'm, I'm, uh, there are far, there are people okay. there are people in uh, the government that. Me personally, and a lot of people do not agree with Netanyahu's government and the way he's doing things. I still. But you're not calling it a war crime. Um, like you're not, or, or or something else. Like I don't know what word would you you'd want to use. Like I, I think for me, like let me let I want to just explain the response, right? Mm-hmm. Because because you're always going to get this response from pro-Palestinian protesters. I'm going to use the analogy of family violence again. There's a house down the street. Smoke comes out of there. Screams come out of there. Gunfire comes out of there. Everybody in the street knows the two the, the parties are warring. They're mm. not, right? She runs out in the street every now and then screaming. She's been seen throwing rocks and stones at, back at the house, maybe even a Molotov cocktail every now and then, right? He comes out all suited up, looking really mm. perfect, and says she's crazy. She wants to kill me, right? But... He's got all the power. He like we everyone knows he owns the guns in that house. So when gunfire is going off, we know he's shooting them, right? Her mother gets involved and tries to sort of interfere and tries to get at him somehow, calls the authorities, tries to take him down, says, you know what, no one's helping my daughter, so I'm gonna kill this man. I won't rest till I kill this man. And everyone says the problem with that woman is her mother wanting to kill that guy. Mm. That's her problem, is that her mother is now interfering. The mother is Hamas, right? And I'm not saying Hamas is the mother of Palestinians, but it's just a, it's a, it's a figure of trying to protect against an entire, like, dead silence where people – and it's not like some of the neighbours are disturbed, some of the neighbours are saying we need to help her. Other neighbours are saying that guy is protecting himself against her. Look at her throwing Molotov cocktails. Like, that's – what we see, right? Like that's what a lot of pro-Palestinian protesters see. And it sounds absurd. So for me, in this conversation, and and I don't want to put, like if you're saying to me he needs to protect himself against her or the mother's really the one to blame, Mm. I need to understand that because I'm just letting you know that what I see is a, a primary aggressor who's using significantly imbalanced levels of force and violence against someone who's much weaker and more vulnerable than him. So my, my question, and that when that person fights back, it, it is in self-defense in my view, which we do. This is literally a parallel you can make with family violence. People go, the police will rock up to a house, right? Mm-hmm. And 50% of the time they get the primary aggressor wrong. They say she's the primary aggressor. When it's an Aboriginal home, a hundred percent of the time, they get it wrong. These are New South Wales stats, no, no, I, right? And, and I've so, heard all that. I, uh, I agree uh, with all that. All, all so, the, uh, yeah, help me analog- to understand well, like so where I'm, you I'm see not, it. I'm like, not sure if I agree with the analogy between domestic violence. I kind of isolate that as a like in, in Australia as a separate horrible thing, and don't, like I'm not last thing I would want to be defending violence. I, I suppose I, I, I view Israel's always from my upbringing, always been a country that has been surrounded by 
enemies and over time the way of, you know, protecting themselves has been to build up a military and one of the strengths and one of the weaknesses of Israel all at once is the concept of the military because it builds a strong nationalistic spirit. Anyone that goes through the army, you've, you know, you've got that camaraderie of people and uh, a, a strong sense of nationalism because you feel you're protecting yourself against imminent uh, existential kind of threats. The It is uneven. Israel's in, and this is what I was trying to say before, Israel is in the from a military point of view, in a position of power relatively, and you can argue how and why it got to that situation, but they are in a really strong military situation. Disproportionate is a, is a word that's always used, and it is disproportionate, and I acknowledge, me personally here, that too many people in uh, Gaza have been killed also, what you mentioned about the prisoners. Yes, there are lots of people that probably shouldn't have been held in prison. I don't equate prisoners and hostages are very, are not, they're not equal. It's a different situation. People were, innocent people were taken. Prisoners, you can argue whatever, but they, they were perceived as doing something wrong. They may, obviously what you said, kids and people that are innocent are part a- of that. Who haven't been charged who and haven't, haven't been, been through a trial. A- a- yeah. Absolutely. So Comple- to use the word prisoner on someone who hasn't been charged and put through a trial is actually debatable in itself. Okay, so yeah. I, I acknowledge that. Yeah. I acknowledge okay. that that is debatable. Because they're like prisoners of war now, and which is the same as a hostage. Well, except... They're not the hostages were not combatants. The hostages were neither was a, neither was a child. Were, a child throwing a stone at a tank is not a combatant. He, they weren't in uniform. They weren't carrying weapons. They weren't enrolled in any military service. Like they're not, you know. Like I mean, I think if they're not Hamas fighters, they're they're, they're kids in the street. No, there aren't more than five thousand Hamas it, fighters in the prisons of Israel. Like, no, I, and that, that's yes, that's probably right. And but it's it, it's a. It, it's a moot point, and that's not for us to solve now. So I'm not like I don't. It's not, no. it, it, okay. it, it, it's not. It's not even about that. I suppose the. Uh, I, I want to bring it down to because we went. I think we did fall down the. Let's try and solve the Middle East <laughs> conflict in an hour kind of thing. Uh, that's not. I don't want to solve the Middle East conflict. I want to understand you better. Okay, and so yeah. my, so my background, the, the the background, and you got to understand the transgenerational Holocaust trauma in my generation, and you know, especially you know the generation above me. Mm. The, the triggering of phrases like "river to the sea" and the existential threat that we believe Israel is, because Israel's always been. When you think of the history of the Jews, which is every generation or two we get kicked out of a country, that's happened for centuries, Israel's always been, well, the sort of we've always got Israel kind of thing. You know, like well, we d- well, you didn't because it didn't, you didn't always have the state of Israel. That's from 1948 onwards. Like for, there was a period of time in, for hundreds of years when when some of the Jews were in Europe and not living in a not living in peace because the Jews that were living in the Middle East were living in peace in that time. But the Jews that were in a, in Europe be, being mistreated and the Holocaust happened in Europe, not in Palestine or Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or Egypt well, the, or Jordan. Um, there was a period of time that there was no state of Israel to go to, 
And not all Jews in the world were being mistreated where they lived. The Jews of Europe were being mistreated. And, where and they but lived. I mean, if you look and at and they the don't sets, represent all Jews, and they don't represent and Europeans don't represent the entire world view towards Jews. But there's also a either. whole lot of Jews that were also exiled from the Arab lands. They were forced to in 1948. You can look at the dates. Literally, there was like. Thousands and tens of thousands of Jews living in the Arab world for hundreds of years. Suddenly, in 1948, they're exiled. But it was the, 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 it was the Ashkenazi and the Eastern European Jews that forced them to go and live there because they wanted to populate the state of Israel so that it, there'd be more Jews in it. They were for, there's documentaries on this. I've met Arab Israelis. I've met Arab Jews in my life, like so many of them. That, that talk about their grandfather, like talks about being forced to leave Iraq. Forced. Lebanon had a hundred synagogues in it. No, At the I'm time, not, even not. that I was born, there's, like, there's, 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 there's 10 Jews or something left in Lebanon. Now. I don't even know. But, but Jews are Semites, like the other Semites mm. are Semites. Like, like Christians are Semites and Muslims are Semites and Druze are Semites and whatever other religions, mm. like they're the, they're the, th- the three Abrahamic mm. religions come from that part of the world. We are the Semitic people of the world, right? So, of course, Jews lived everywhere. And, of course, if you create a state of Israel, which is a, which is a homeland for the Jews, of course they said, hey, come mm. and live here. Don't keep living there mm. for whatever reason, right? But it's not like the, the Arabs suddenly had an uprising and kicked the Jews out. It's a European problem that was dumped on the Middle East. I, I, it's uh, calling it a European. It was a world problem at the time. How? How was it a world problem? What was going on st- in Africa at the time? What was going whole, on in Latin America of, at the time? There were a whole time? lot of stateless people post World War Two. Yeah, and that, and there was, and none of the other that, stateless people did what the no, Jews did. Because I would argue, there's been a. Uh, for, there's been always a desire for the Jews to return to Israel. Every, every Armenians have always had a desire to return. Kurds have always had a re- but desire there's to return. Palestinians, within the, Palestinians the have a desire to return. It doesn't matter why you use it, whether it's the Bible or, or, or mm. your Holocaust or the Armenian Holocaust or, mm. you know, like the, the Chinese wanted to live without being murdered by the Japanese. Now now everyone in Asia is worried about China's wrath. Like, you know, you see Taiwan and Hong mm. Kong in particular. Like everybody's everybody who's not in power is fearful of dying at the hands of a colonial um, or imperialist or, or some other, like force against them. The Ukrainians aren't happy with Russia. In fact, all of East European, mm-hmm. I traveled there. Yeah. They do not feel comfortable with Russia next door. I travel to the countries around China. They don't feel comfortable with China next door. The First Nations people here don't feel comfortable with the colonial entity that runs this. Like a lot of that I agree with, a lot of it I don't I don't agree with and, you know, I don't claim to know the, the history of what, you know, of all the histories of the Jews in the Arab lands and things like that. I've you know, I've got a different sort of narrative attached to it. When when you talk about the whole colonial thing, I think there's going to be an element of pragmatism. We still are. We still come back to how do we? We've got two people that aren't happy to live together in in, in one land, and I, I think a way of having a dialogue that we're sort of hopefully modelling here needs to happen in the rest of the world. People need to talk and work out a way of living with people. Because yeah. I think 90% of people just want to go to work and live and bring up families mm, and, mm. you know, do the best that they can, education, health, all those, all those kind of things. I personally acknowledge that Gaza's been trashed. I'm worried about the future of it. I don't think, uh, I, you know, I think Israel needs to have a proper plan to either hand it over or, or redevelop it in a way. I think the one thing that they do believe is that they can't, Hamas cannot be in a position of power. I personally, on a 
political point of view, I don't think Netanyahu's going to survive much longer in power, but he's a, he's a very good politician. Maybe he will. I don't know. Mm. I, look, and I, I think I think that's the point we come to, you know, is it, uh, like it's interesting because that, that for me has tied a bit of some of the elements of our conversation is in we have to get rid of a certain type. Right now we can't be led by narcissistic psychopaths mm. if we're going to move towards some other future that we all get to go to work and have mm. fun and live. What we have in Australia when we're non-Indigenous and some Indigenous Australians have as well, but, you know, that's a whole other complex thing. What we what we have here we want for the Israelis and the Palestinians. Agreed. Right? Like I, I, I don't know if I've stated this, but it makes perfect sense to me that Israeli Jews would feel uncertain about their peace and security mm. in the same way that it makes perfect sense that the Arabs around them don't feel safe about their peace of security. So whoever's been leading so far hasn't proven that they can guarantee that. So we've got to look at the model and who's in and, – and I think it's got to be a bit of a global effort. I, I, I yeah. agree. Now, Hala, we, 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 we have run out of time, but yeah. I personally – I would like to thank you because I think it's brave of you, even though it doesn't feel, I don't know if it feels brave. Let, let's, having this discourse, I think, you know, I, I think it's not, we could easily sit in our own little echo chambers and I think it's nice to sometimes reach out for the chamber and, you know, give of each, yeah. of each other. It's not an easy topic and it's something we both, you know, feel passionately about. Um, mm. We've both got strong connections to what's going on at the moment. I think we need to acknowledge that Australia, you know, when they talk about the lucky country, we are lucky. We live, we've got a good, relatively good medical system. There's some stuff that needs to be fixed here, but it's relatively easy to live and it's a luxury and having this chat is a luxury yeah. in the in a world context. But hopefully, you know, people will listen to it and go, hey, you know, they had a chat, there was no, there was no, Violence, especially after we both had coffees. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, so, um, so I like genuinely, I'm offering my uh, my thanks for you for giving this a red hot go. Yeah, thank you. And and I, likewise, I appreciated the way you um, f- when you I think you found my email online and when you, your approach has always been respectful, really open, and I, I've I've enjoyed the conversations with you leading up to today to even decide whether we'd come together or not and what what it would be about. And it's never for me about, um, well, well, not what it's not about, what it is about. Like no matter what, I still get to know you better every time we speak and I appreciate who you are in the world and I enjoy our chats. I enjoy our interconnections. So, um, yeah, we're at time. So, But anyway, so thank you for inviting me into the space and yourself for being open and brave. We hope you enjoyed episode one of Hummus and Dill. We'll release our next chat in a week or so. Just a reminder, we have a service called Buy Me A Coffee. For the cost of a coffee, you can help us make a few more podcasts. Thanks again to Piccolo Podcasts for the studio. The Hummus and Dill podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have any feedback or have a question, send us an email at hummusanddill at gmail.com. That's H-U-M-M-U-S-N. D-I-L-L at gmail.com.